Hello everyone and welcome back to Behind Massive Screens, a game development podcast here from Massive Entertainment in Malmö, Sweden. My name is Dori and I'm joined here as always by my co-host Petter. Hello. Hello. So Hello. how have you been doing? I'm 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 good. This is actually a kind of a time warp thing again because this is officially the last thing I do. When we're done here, I'm just going to pack up my stuff that's in the corner and go home and not be back for three months. Yeah, you make it sound a lot more dramatic than it actually yeah, is. You're, you're going on parental leave. Yeah, and this might be released in January, in which case I'm back in two weeks. <laughs> uh, if it's released closer to its three months. Yeah, that's, so that's, uh, that's, that's uh, stacking content for you. But uh, <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, for those of you joining for the very first time here on Behind Massive Screens, uh, me and Petter, we like to uh, lure our... Uh, co-workers into the little podcast room and then we grill them about uh, well themselves their jobs and uh, everything and how that interconnects yeah and today we have two people with some of the coolest titles i think that we've ever had like level designer game designer but i'm gonna actually yeah, read this those, right do not get this wrong we have Ula, snowdrop operations director and julia lead knowledge manager welcome how are you guys doing okay yeah. It's not scary. Thank you for having us. I'm just hoping for an outcome where we can knowledge manage the operations at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. That, that's our job, making the silly jokes. So. That's true. true. <laughs> <laughs> that's not in the notes. No. Um, so let's start with the fancy titles. Let's start with you, Julia. All right. What does, on a kind of a higher level, we're going to get into the details later on, but what does a lead knowledge manager do? Well, there's two things in that title. There's the lead, which means I lead a little team of knowledge professionals. And together we do the knowledge management, which is about overseeing and uh, managing how we share knowledge and interact with it within Snowdrop and outside of the Snowdrop team. Right. And let's read that again, just to make sure. Snowdrop operations director on a higher level. What would that mean? So it's a bit the same thing. It's to do with direction, mm -hmm. which is to say I, I sit uh, quite high in the team, on the core team, the, the five-man group that leads the activities of the whole team over the year and into the future. Operations is all the back-end stuff that you, if we do it right, you wouldn't notice it. It's hiring people, it's laying budgets, it's making sure there's a strategy that's actionable, it's training people, organizing people to be effective and successful. Again, if it doesn't work, you'll know right away. Right. I think we missed a very crucial detail in this. Oh, yeah. I was actually, I was going to jam in uh, a question here, in between the questions that we always ask, and that is just to clarify, what is Snowdrop exactly. for, for those of you out there that are unaware? So Snowdrop is a what we think of as a, in Ubisoft as a game pipeline. So it has two components. It's got an engine component. That's the all the cool software that talks to the cool hardware that draws the graphics and remembers the save files and, and kind of simulates the physics and is an editor so you can use to place objects and, and tweak your game. And it's the um, delivery component. How do we bring this to people? How do we update it? How do we onboard new people? Uh, how do we version manage all the data that goes between people? How do we make sure that stuff's documented and kind of self-service? Right. And there are two of these, two pipelines in Ubisoft. It's Anvil, that's used famously for Assassin's Creed, but also other games. And there's Snowdrop, that's used famously for 
the division, but also a lot of other games. Yeah. Um, all right. Yeah. Was that clear enough? Yeah. Do we know what's not believe, now? I believe so. Yeah. Then, and, and we'll dive deeper into those two separate components that you talk about as well, like how player facing as like a gaming engine and also internally within Ubisoft. Yeah. But then let's jump to the typical behind massive screen questions. And let's this time begin with Ula. How did you end up in the gaming industry and at Massive Entertainment? Well, um, sit back, people. Uh, <laughs> since I've, I've been at the career for about going on 30 years. Right. Um, so I started out in the games industry as a wee lad, uh, making games for fun, both board games and card games and, and computer games in the 80s. Uh, and in the 90s, when I was about to finish high school, uh, I started a, a co-founded a small miniatures war game company in Sweden. Uh, we made a game and we took it to conventions and tried it out and we drew it out and printed it and, and sold it through a, like a chain of game stores in Sweden, made a bit of money. Um, and from there on, I went on to do freelance work with illustration mostly because my dream at the time was to be an illustrator like the coolest thing about the games when you were a kid were the covers and the, kind of the, right. the way the manual looked inside and stuff like that um so but i wanted to start working more digitally because i kind of am of this generation that's kind of a barely one foot into the digital generation so to speak born in the 70s so i figured you learn by doing so i applied for a job at a game company as a concept artist a um, computer game company, got that job, moved up to Stockholm. Uh, halfway through, I noticed that they didn't have a game designer. And coming from kind of pen and paper games where you roll dice and, you know, take notes and build terrain and stuff, that's only game design. And the world building is whatever you write in the manual. Um, it was so weird to not have people working with those aspects very actively. Um, it was so so much to do is making the game engine work and, and doing the 3D graphics and importing the mocap data and stuff. So uh, I started doing that and concept artisting and we were making a World War II game that was meant to be photorealistic in its ambition and there's so much reference material. <laughs> like you, you like photos and toys and um, scale models and, and everything, everything, everything. So I started building reference libraries and doing game design. So I ended up being hired as a game designer. Um, so I worked as a game designer up there for a couple of years on a game that ended up being released at Battlefield 1942. Might have heard of it. Yes, that was a nice time uh, in the Swedish gaming industry. Right. Super cool time, super cool people. Uh, so I actually went back to, to university and got a college degree. Started out with reading some philosophy because I wanted to figure out kind of the philosophy of knowledge and kind of history of ideas and stuff like that, formal logic, uh, um, philosophy of language, like how people communicate. As a game designer, these things are really cool because they're systems, right? Uh, and I ended up gliding, sliding over to sociology because I think the most interesting thing to me is how people interact in groups and between groups of people. And I also kind of like co-op and multiplayer games as a game designer, so I kind of went together. Got a degree in that, ended up teaching game design for three years uh, in a smaller town in Sweden called Kröverde. Super cool. And I had this idea that I wanted to work with games. The games industry in Sweden was growing. There weren't enough people to hire. Like when we had 
pitched and gotten funding for Battlefield, we couldn't hire game designers or, or level artists because they weren't around. Right. The only people who existed were self-taught from the 80s and 90s, and they were all hired or had their own companies. So we have to make more. <laughs> so that was cool to work for a couple yeah, of years training people. Kravda was really there, like the center of, of games education in Sweden for a while. I think it was because it was a small university, so yeah. they couldn't compete on brand name and super competitive educations. But what they could do is get everyone in a room between different departments, yeah. like the tech department and the UX department and the art department and, and kind of all of it could come together yeah. and have a very cross-disciplinary coursework. So the programmers would actually have courses with the artists and game designers and make games and then go back and do kind of specific training and then come back next year, do another game project. Uh, quite credible. I, I liked it. I like the people there. A lot of the people from there, uh, of course, went on to have great careers. And that's very rewarding too, to mentor people and coach them and set them up for success, which is kind of what I ended up doing anyway later on in life. But I did want to make games, I found out, like I was hesitant whether I should go into research. I kind of wanted to get a PhD and, and do research on games and gamers and game companies. But it's cooler to build things than to pick them apart and explain to strangers how they work, which I feel is what researchers do, largely. So uh, I figured someone else can do the research and tell me how things work and I will try to figure out how, what to do with it. <laughs> so I went back and founded a game company with a couple of friends around that for about four years. It went all right and then it didn't go so well. So we, we discontinued it in the 2012, I think, early adopters of Unity and a couple of other cool things. First streamed 3D MMO on Facebook, Friendster and Orkut. Um, so from there, I moved on to another company where I ended up uh, getting a gig as a producer. I, I applied as a game designer, but I got the job as producer because I had been the managing director of that small 20-person outfit and had done a lot of organizational work. And six months into that, the existing kind of founder, MD, uh, quit because <laughs> he wanted to move back and go to his family and, and run a business more local to where he was from. So the board asked me if I wanted the job, um, which was lucky for me and hopefully for the company. Uh, that company was Torsha Studios. So I ran that as three and a half, four years as an MD and kind of ran a strategy cycle and kind of established a strategic way of working and... Uh, started building unique IPs instead of working with Sony on legacy IPs like Little Big Planet. Um, and then I looked around. I had moved down to Malmo again because it was very close to Copenhagen where Unity had its head office and we had used Unity for my first startup. And Massive was in town and, and in 2016 Massive released The Division and I really liked The Division. It's my kind of game. It's multiplayer. It's it's exciting. It was really high quality and it was enjoyable to play because in my view Massive had done really high quality games that were a bit niche uh, with their previous entrance. So I thought this is super exciting and Massive was growing so and had been acquired by Ubisoft importantly. And I thought Ubisoft had kind of brought that layer of bombast and entertainment and, and huge to Massive. And I liked that marriage. So I spoke to the managing director of Massive and said, hey, you guys are growing. Um, you know what I do because we're in the same networks. Is there anything I can do to help out? Um, so he offered me a job. And I came in originally as the production manager to kind of help him organize some of the things that kept you know, falling between the cracks and were important, but no one was around to pick it up. And one of those things essentially was taking Snowdrop, building a strategy for Snowdrop and making sure that it could become a centralized engine to serve more than one game project. Right. 
And long story short, I had a couple of other super cool things I got to do uh, when I was still kind of establishing myself for the first two years. I work with Connect, that does game distribution, and I'm such a big fan of logistics, so that was amazing. Uh, I love all these kind of facilitating systems that are required to actually put games into the hands of people, right. not just a single part of the game, but the whole thing. Uh, so I ended up, um, when the Snowdrop team fully centralized by the strategy in 2019, I ended up uh, heading up that effort. And I'm still kind of running the, the backbone and the organization of it today which is a super cool job. So it's, when I was a kid, yes. <laughs> I used to think like this, whenever people ask you when you're like in school, what do you want to be? People want to be, I don't know, astronauts and firemen and engineers and stuff like that. Nobody ever says, I want to be a logistician or I want to be a, yeah, you know, like a, a rehab physician or something like that. But there are so many cool professions that really make society work. Right. So I, uh, I kind of look back and go, okay, I ended up in one of those professions. Kind of the questions you ask early on, you probably have an itch that you keep scratching throughout your career. So I'm, uh, that's where I am today. I'm super happy about it. I like to work on the strategic layer. I like to facilitate. I like to put people in a position where they can be wildly successful and help people deliver the value. And that gives me a warm, tingly feeling in my heart. That's kind of that was one of the things we want to do with this podcast as well. We're talking about like various work or various jobs people don't think about very much. And that's what we kind of want to show here as well, because in the industry itself, there are so many jobs that people either don't know about or they don't really think about when in actuality, when you sit down with them, they're really cool. They're very important. And it's just such a wide range of uh, stuff that needed to get from making the game, making the engine that the game is in that we we're talking about today. And of course, as you you mentioned, connect and everything. So the, the, the entire process is is gigantic. Yeah. And then you have people like us. I have no idea what they're doing. Yeah, that, that get to um, uh, to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> they, the system well, works. They, they let us do it. <laughs> hey, hey. Um, Julia, same question to you. How did you end up at Massive Entertainment and the games industry? Hmm. I, uh, yeah, I also have a story, maybe not quite as long, but uh, it's a, <laughs> it wasn't a, a linear path. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it wasn't a linear path for me either. Um, I uh, actually, I don't have a, an education in games. I am a linguist by trade. Um, and when I went to university and studied for that, I, I played games and I dreamt of working in games, but I never really thought that that would be possible because right. I was not going into a into such a direction. Uh, when I was at university, I thought I, I wanted to be an editor or a writer. That was my ambition. Um, but I graduated with a degree in languages and, uh, well, the job market wasn't my friend. Um, so <laughs> every I, academic, <laughs> every academic ever, uh, yeah. especially in like uh, languages, uh, it's not, uh, not, not, it's academic. It's very academic. Yeah. So, uh, I also, I wrote my thesis about medieval, late medieval love songs. And, and I studied like medieval forms of like German, which is my mother tongue. So, uh, that wasn't, or oh, employers didn't think that that would be a very practical or skill to it's, it sounds amazing but not very marketable mm, yeah that, I'm, that's I'm that was the thing so i started casting wider and wider net and right. uh, started uh, working here and there and after a bit of trial and error 
um, I found that, uh, well, a game released in a franchise that was very close to my heart at the time, or maybe still is, um, The Elder Scrolls Online was about to release. And they were looking for people to work in their customer support. And they had very, um, very few requirements. One was you need to speak a language that uh, the game is localized in so you can support in that language. And I had that skill. Yeah. So <laughs> I applied for that and it worked. They didn't say knowledge of medieval love songs? They, on the... uh, no. But it, I mean, to, to be honest with Elder Scrolls Online, I mean, that, that can only help. <laughs> it did <laughs> help true. in the end. It did, actually. <laughs> yes. So that's where the it. circle kind of closed. <laughs> it, uh, I started working there. They did hire me. I moved to Ireland. Um, where their support center was at the time. And uh, I became a game master. So like someone supporting players in the game. Right. And um, the knowledge of, uh, you know, the, the, the knowledge of medieval love songs and studying like medieval law and language made me a better role player, which was then fun to use in interaction with players when role right. playing with players. So that was that was a super fun job. Um, and that was my entry into uh, the games industry. What then happened was that uh, Ubisoft also uh, changed the way their customer support worked and they opened a new office in um, in the UK. So I went there pretty much early on. They had opened been open for a month or so when I started working there and uh, I became a customer support agent over there. And then I went through different jobs inside customer support. So first I was just, just an agent. I, I don't, it's not just an agent. I was an agent, one of many. And then uh, I helped found their quality assurance. So the, the people who coach agents toward better interactions with customers. And from there, <clears throat> that helped me figure out where agents were, uh, not well supported or the, the infrastructure of the place was lacking. And um, I became one of the founding members of their knowledge team. So the team inside customer support that would manage uh, support knowledge because obviously agents need to know how to respond to players and how to troubleshoot various issues that occur in games that are released, new games, old games, the entire back catalog, all of it. And uh, the interactions with players also generate a lot of knowledge because players tell you things, right? Yeah. They, they tell you, I love this game. I hate this game. I, I have an issue with this. Or uh, even in troubleshooting, they tell you, I, I tried this. It didn't work for me, but then I tried that and that worked for me. So this is all kind of knowledge that you want to capture and then right. share with the rest of, um, of the office and the other agents so they can then use that knowledge to have better interactions or faster resolutions and so on and so on. So I was part of the team that built that sort of infrastructure and the processes around all of that. Um, and that was super exciting. That was a very interesting time. Um, after a while, though, I learned that Massive was looking for people. And I'd been in the UK for so long, I started to feel like I, I wanted to change a few things. So I, uh, I looked at that and Massive was looking for a player experience manager. So someone who understood how players tick and someone who could then help improve their experience in the game. And 
coming from customer support and doing knowledge management customer support, I had a pretty good idea of how players tick. So <laughs> I, I applied for that job and it worked out. So that's how I came to Massive, actually, as a player experience manager on uh, the Division 2. And I did that for quite a while. Um, but again, you know, our industry is very fast moving and floaty. So after a while, the division started to uh, ramp down a little bit the team. And I started looking for other things I might be able to do in Massive. And, uh, and Snowdrop popped up on my radar. Um, so I went to Snowdrop to continue working with knowledge, which is what I'm doing now. Um, yeah. the, the job that I did back at customer support and the job that I'm doing now for Snowdrop is, is not too different, actually. Um, different type of knowledge, different type of audience, but a lot of the philosophy behind it is exactly the same. So that is my path of how I ended up here. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's, well, not only super interesting, but it leads me to, I want to ask a little bit about kind of your, your day-to-day. Yeah. Because... Like you said, you work with uh, customer support and there, I mean, I, I have a pretty clear idea in my head what that knowledge is for. Like you said, it's to assist the players. But but mm-hmm. within Snowdrop, the, the knowledge that's being gathered there, um, who who is that for? What sort of knowledge and uh, yeah, the, the day-to-day of how you collect it? And stuff like that. I, I think you have a good point there in the, in the middle of all that. Uh, what kind of knowledge? Can we def- kind of define knowledge? Because we've talked around it in a... We, I think you were pretty clear when it came to what it was in customer support. Uh, mm. But can you define what knowledge is in this case? And then yeah. everything Dory said, like, how, how do you work with that now defined knowledge? <laughs> okay. Um, so knowledge, um, we are using that word in the broadest possible sense. Knowledge is basically what you distill from data and information. Um, it is basically the result of a process. But we we use the word knowledge because we don't want to limit ourselves to saying we just manage data or we just manage uh, this piece, subset of, uh, of information that we collect. Um, we manage all of it and the entire process around it. So in um, when it comes to Snowdrop, um, our players are basically the people who use Snowdrop to make games. So that those are our customers. And a lot of the knowledge that we manage and curate uh, is for this group. It's for this group of users. So uh, it focuses a lot on user documentation, but that's not all. So it's also about uh, how we share knowledge within the team, you know, how, how we make sure that we, uh, people who work on the engine, who make the engine uh, are in the know of what other parts of the team are doing and why they are doing the things they are doing. And so there's no conflicts. Um, there's Instead, we create some synergy there. That's great. So most of what we do, though, is user-focused, which is very similar to how in customer support, most of what we do is player-focused. Um, so we want to make it so that uh, people who use the engine know how uh, on that's that's the nutshell version of it right now the engine is a super big complex beast to interact with uh, so there's lots of different pieces and layers to all of that um, from you know booting it for the first time to doing very very intricate little things with it um, and all of that we try to capture somehow and 
share. And we try to share it in a way that is easily accessible to users as well. We don't want them to have to browse through libraries for hundreds of years to find what they're looking for. It should be where they work. And that is what we're sorting out. Yeah, to get up and running as fast as possible. Yeah, exactly. It, it is, and it's a good uh, time to interject that Snowdrop is a technology, of course. It's tooling built with software, but it's also a methodology. Like it promotes certain workflows, certain ways of thinking about how you make games well and quickly and, and at high quality. So you need to understand how to use the technology, but also how to approach it, the perspective, kind of the ways of working, the values. Uh, and we've seen teams come in and try to approach it like they would pipeline a project for another game engine. And they're usually less successful than the ones that use kind of the the, um, the recommended workflows. Let's put it that way. Right. So, so onboarding into both is important and it's not uh, trivial or simple always how to best do that. No, because then you have to, you gather all the knowledge, but you, as you said, it should be where they are working, mm -hmm. where they're looking, like how you impart that knowledge then back to, so people can actually onboard. How does that process usually look? Which process? The onboarding how do, how process? You, yeah, well, the onboarding and how you, how do you approach like making it actually readable for mm. the people who need to learn this knowledge? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, very good question. Um, that's something that evolves and changes over time, all the time. Um, we're trying to put the knowledge, we're trying to make it so that it's not fragmented, so that units that belong together, like say everything you need to know when you're on board, everything you need to know when you spend your first hour in Snowdrop, for example, is in one place. So people know where to find this and they can find all the relevant information in the same place. Um, and then we try to make it so that the transition between those places or repositories or units becomes organic and natural so that people can go from one place to the next to the next. They are basically taken by the hand and they don't even know it. Um, plus, when they reach a place where they are, where they have completed onboarding, they're now fully up and running. Um, we We understand what they do and where they do it and how they do it. And then we put the information and the documentation there, right there where they are. So they don't need to actually, I don't know, tab out of the editor that they're working in and go look on a different separate tool somewhere um, to yeah. find the information. So yeah, we're they, trying they, to put it where they are. So they, they don't need documentation to find out where the documentation that they need is. It's yeah. just, it's right <laughs> where where you think it should be. Exactly. So that is the that is the plan and that is what we're working toward. Um, yeah. Um, so is that, it fair to say that we have that in common, that if you do your work well, no one will think about it? Exactly, yeah. So of course, there's the tooltip or there's the information. Yes. That's how that works. Ideally, people don't interact with documentation at all because everything is so self-explanatory and so well designed that they don't need to go somewhere else to look at things because it explains itself. So that's um, how we knowledge managers have to interact with a lot of other teams in Snowdrop all the time because those design questions and how how do we design something with knowledge and like user experience in mind, um, those are obviously disciplines that, that we then have to interact with. And so we, a lot of our work is very uh, intertwined, uh, interdisciplinary, and a lot of it 
is done in conversation and meetings with other people. Yeah, because that's my next kind of follow up to this is that Snowdrop, like like any engine, essentially is under constant development. Like it's always improving. There's always changes being made. There's new versions, new weird numbers and letters to put at the end um, of the files. As anyone who's ever touched a game engine know, what does this B mean? What does this one two five? I don't get it. Um, but all of that stuff is constantly happening. Mm-hmm. So. There must be new knowledge coming in all the time as well. Like, and you just have to slot it in where it fits. Like, how does how does that part of the job look? Because okay, we have this information that needs to go out. Okay, great. We put it here. Everything is available. What the hell just happened? Now we have fifteen layers more to this uh, thing. Now we have to sort that information. Can you guys just stop <laughs> <laughs> doing what you're doing, please? Uh. Yes, sometimes I wish I could freeze time and just sort out <laughs> this one thing. Um, but that's not how it works, right? So yeah, we, we are under constant development. So it's very important for for the knowledge managers to be involved in all of the things that are happening. Um, and that's not um, not always organic because things happen so fast. Um, and they happen, you know, with inspired people working very fast on, on things. Um but we try to keep tabs and insert ourselves in all of the conversations, <laughs> sometimes uh, uh, not gently. <laughs> Sorry about that. But we, we have to know what's going on so we can understand, ah, there's new challenges coming up. Ah, there's new a new unit of documentation is needed. Where do we put it? You know, what is the best place? How do people interact with it? We need to ask a lot of questions now because we need to understand what this is for, who this is for, who needs to see this when, and so on and so on. And how do we updated because the creation of doc, uh, of documentation or knowledge is always just one side of the coin, right? When we've created it, we can't abandon it. We need right. to update it just the same way we update the engine um, or the pipeline. And that is uh, that is challenging. Yeah. Um, so that's something that is requires constant vigilance to understand <laughs> you know, what is changing, yeah. how, and who can update it. But something I always like looking at it from the side is that you you and your team have spent and still stop and spend a fair bit of time in design. Like it boils down to categorization. Like what kind of information is this? What kind of person would need it when? Yeah. Right? If you understand the the taxonomy, the categorization, the types, and have systems to kind of bring them pipelines to bring that to the player it becomes easier. right? And if you reach the end of the road with a system or understanding, then you have to go back. If you have to pick up everything yeah. and just start fresh and like, I have no idea what this is for or how to get this into the hands of anyone, it would be an insurmountable task. So I, it's a bit like UX. A lot of the time I see you guys spending is in research, ideation, and, and kind of categorization so that things end up in the right in a maintainable system. And again, I'm seeing this from the side, people. So this is how I see it. And <laughs> is that is that, am I, have I seen the right thing? Like, yeah, that's correct. A lot of what we do is yeah. <laughs> this could have gotten really it's like no, no, <laughs> no, wouldn't be the first time in my life, by the way. No, it's, uh, this is great. We also we are quite vocal about it. I know um, we uh, spend that's a lot your of time. Job. Yeah, it's our job. Yeah, we we need to understand who our users are and how they tick. 
So that, again, that's like that's almost like customer support, right? We need to understand who the people are that we need to be helping, and what they need to be able to like be empowered and enabled and work on their craft the best way without spending, you know, aeons looking for how do I do this thing? So uh, a lot of what we do is to do with, well, understanding our different user groups and who does what, where, how and when Um, and understanding the types of knowledge that we have and that we require, understand where there might be discrepancies, how we fill these gaps um, and how we can make it so that it runs itself, right? right. So that, that it's almost half automated, you know. We, we don't need to give people the documentation almost like on a piece of paper, here you go, but they can find it themselves because it's so well categorized, because we know exactly what it is and who for. Um, yeah, and that is a lot of what we do. Nice. Now... We, we've talked about, as you said before, Snowdrop always evolving, always growing. Um, like before I started working here at Massive, I, of course, knew uh, Snowdrop as, oh, yeah, that logo that pops up when the division boots up. <laughs> and then I saw it on, on South Park. So like Snowdrop coming from being the engine here at Massive, now being, as you said before, a global engine within Ubisoft. Uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, the evolution there and and where where snowdrop is is going yeah so i have the privilege of working with people who have been here for a long time of course so who has been here since before snowdrop was made so that harkens back to the history of massive uh, before and during the the acquisition by ubisoft so Massive was always a pretty tech studio. It was founded by an engineering student and by engineers and always pretty engineering heavy, great tech, great ideas. Uh, and by the time Ubisoft acquired Massive in 2008, it was a PC-centric studio, which most of the very kind of tech-happy studios used to be back in the day. And it was also quite uh, far along with online. And that was rare in the Ubisoft portfolio of the time because most of the studios were very console-centric and single-player-centric. And Massive at that point had already made two and a half, three engines. One for Ground Control and Ground Control 2, a version or another version, and then Mass Ed, or Mass Tech rather, with Mass Editor was a part of, for World in Conflict. And people were starting to say, you know what? This is not the future, to build a new tech stack and a new tech for every game we make, especially not with, with increased production values, AAA had become a thing, etc. cetera. Um, PlayStation's 2, 3 on um, meant console, had more storage capacity, bigger games, bigger production values. So the question then became, because during the, the kind of acquisition phase of, of Massive, there's usually a bit of a lull. The corporate management is super busy writing the right deals and figuring out who goes where. And, and content people are pretty easy to put to work, like, hey, I make graphics or, or help out with this. But a number of the techiest people at Massive had time to sit around and go, how can we get out of this hamster wheel, right? <laughs> what would be smart to do? And recognize that you want to build an engine with a very clean, smart, fundamental architecture so that it's modular and thus updatable. You can swap out modules without breaking the whole system. They had learned that when are we successful making games? It's when we're fast, 
but like we can quickly get the results up on the screen, can quickly whip out an idea. We don't have to sit around and go, well, I'll wait for this specialist programmer to come back from vacation so he can fix this little thing I need so I can do my thing and give it to a third person who can do their thing. Every individual contributor should be able to do as much as possible without help from anyone else. And these ideas, these philosophies, form the foundational framework uh, that Snowdrop was built towards. Uh, and it ended up future-proofing the engine quite heavily. And also, the idea was that the actual engine layer, the fundamental logic and low-level systems of the engine, should be pretty thin, and they shouldn't make a bunch of assumptions of what goes on on top of it. That means that you could make the division on Snowdrop, and you could make South Park, and you could make Mario Rabbids, and you could make Starlink. Because there's a lot of freedom on top. Uh, the drawback, of course, is that a more monolithic kind of everything integrated top to bottom engine is a lot, lot more easy to stick into the hands of just anyone and give them a task and they can get that task done. Yeah, all the workspaces are just predefined. Exactly. And here's a pipeline. Here's how you, you build it in this 3D editor. You stick uh, a texture on it from this pixel editor and a raster editor. And here you go, kind of here's a, a textured model and here's how to import it and this and that. Snowdrop gives more freedom. So each project has a lot of leeway in setting up their pipeline. Like here's exactly how we do it. And here's how we can uh, leverage the, the skills we have and the vision we have. And it requires a bit more setup and, and, and some technically competent people are comfortable with certain things to really get it going well. But the flexibility and the power that comes out of it is worth it uh, by quite a long shot. So the the orig origin of Snowden was these thoughts and it's really kind of carried through till now into the future. It's still a modern engine. It's still quite good at, you know, multi-threading and, and relatively easy to make rate of cloud computing and it's had online componentry built into it from day one so it's it's pretty flexible and extensible where it matters where a lot of older engines sometimes struggle and it started out being fully data driven instead of hard-coded code driven like a lot of the older generation engines were so um, a number of really smart bets by smart people was the nucleus and then more and more people got engaged the company grew around it ubisoft scaled up as well around it and more and more people were interested in using it because it seemed promising and seemed powerful and techy and cool and new it is powerful and techy and cool yeah and i mean uh, or it's not new but it's no it's that's the thing it's some people still new. go it's a new engine i go is it is it <laughs> is really a new engine at this point <laughs> i'm not sure it is but it is all those things yeah for sure and the fact that it's kept that sheen yeah. and it's come so um, upgradable and, and kind of renewable is a wonderful thing, yeah. especially for those of us from older generations of game making where things were quite either static or the tools were terrible or you really ended up locked into legacy ways of thinking and working or you had to go back to the drawing build and build a custom solution just right. for this. So the flexibility, the speed and the ability to quickly see what you're doing that's how you want to work, right? I started out as a concept artist. If someone told me you can only sketch in oil, right? <laughs> and uh, like you have to paint from kind of thin to thick. You have to build it up over weeks and days and it takes days for the oil paint to dry so you can do the next layer. 
I'm going to sketch in that? I don't think so. Like, give me a, a pencil and a paper, please, so I can just see what I'm doing. And then ideally, like a, a light box, so I can transpose it onto a better medium once I'm happy with it. Like, the tooling lets you sketch because a pencil is cheap hmm. and effective, and a, a piece of paper is cheap and effective. And then you can quickly move it to a more kind of durable, expensive format in the next step and the next step and bring it all the way up to whatever production value you want. is way better then kind of you get one shot at this. Here's one huge chunk of marble, and here's a chisel and a hammer. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck making a really nice horse statue. Right. <laughs> like, all right, I can do this. Like, people can learn to do that, and it's wonderful, but yeah. it's there's no room for error, and it's if you make any mistake, it's enormously expensive. Yeah. Yeah, like the, the oil sketch. Like might, pr uh, pressing sorry. enter uh, and waiting for, you know, it to bake. And you yeah. come back in 50 minutes, and it's like, Oh no, that and was that's supposed not to be what here. I wanted. Yeah, yeah exactly. And then, <laughs> then that time is lost to you. I think mm. I remember starting in the 90s and you had compiled coffee. Like you, okay, code is compiling. I'll take a long break now and go drink <laughs> coffee. And the artists who worked in Photoshop in high res textures at the time, they were kind of bleeding edging it to the point where it took so long to save the file because it was so large relative to the capacity of the computers at the time that it took minutes to save the file. So they didn't press control S because it broke the flow. And then I sat across from a number of artists for years and they're like, oh no, the computer crashed. That's a full day's worth of work. <laughs> like happened all the time. Yeah. Like bad processes, bad tools is no joke. Yeah. And uh, putting better ones uh, in front of people is a huge leverage. Yeah. So where do you think Snowdrop is today then? Perfectly positioned. Uh, no, I think Snowdrop is in a great place. Um, the team around Snowdrop has been centralized. We're steadily growing. We're attracting super cool, creative, skilled people from across the world. Um, we have something really good that is a powerful technology and a powerful set of ideas. And what we're really doing now is that we're adding a layer of, uh, call it product, so it's easy to think of it. How quickly, if I want Snowdrop, like I, it should be super easy to just bring it home, set up an easy environment, learn the ropes, uh, know who, where I turn if I need mentoring, if something breaks, it's unexplainable. It should be where to find the knowledge and the documentation. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It is and this is highly connected to, to what Julia and her team does. But what Julia and her team does also is they coach and train engineers. Right. Because the engineers have to write the documentation because, you know, you build, you break it. No matter you write it, you explain it, right? You don't give that to a stranger and say, I made this, now explain it to other strangers. So the whole team is working towards making it easier and better as an experience for the people. I don't want to be flippant about saying it, but the product life cycle of almost any product is if you have a good idea, the really early adopter, grognard people will come and go, oh, let me see, oh, it breaks all the time. That's okay. I can write a bug report. I can fix it. I can work with it. And you work through these kind of people who are highly technically competent, have a lot of patience with quirks and foibles, as long as what you're giving them is cooler and better than other, other offers, right? But you come to a point where you go majority market, right? Any game developer, anyone who's used to something else, who just wants to make a game, doesn't want to be bothered by a bunch of big buzzwords or, or cost of new. They just, it just works, right? right? And that's the target now to bring it 
all of it. Like how easy it's delivered, how easy it is to learn it, how robust it is, how well tested it is, all of it to a very high degree of product quality. And that's that's what the team is. And I think that's a great mission for the thousands of game developers in Ubisoft. And it's uh, it's really rewarding to work on, I feel. One thing we haven't talked about Ooh. in all of this, like we we're talking about the quality of Snowdrop and everything comes together, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a good thing that you have an operations director. Yeah. What does an operations director, what, what does the life of Ula I, I, I keep asking my boss, but he won't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Cedric, if you're listening, that was a joke. No, uh, I go to meetings. Fair. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> no. Podcast over. <laughs> I, I love these things. Like meetings is such a, oh God, my days were wasted. I had to go to a meeting. But if you think about it organizationally, at a certain point, what you do is working with people. You don't write code or kind of uh, do graphics. You make sure people understand things. You figure out what they know or need and establish a way of solving it. Um, you build relationships so if something goes wrong, you can quickly and easily go in and fix it together without a bunch of uh, blame games or, or, or communication problems. So that means that the meeting is really my primary tool, whether it's informing others in kind of a mostly one-way format or if it's workshopping, uh, seminars, um, ideation meetings, syncs, updates, kind of listen up on, on, because Ubisoft is tens of thousands of people what goes on everywhere? What does it mean for us? How do we integrate it? How do we inform people about what we need them to know? Um, then, of course, I have a, a large amount of hours every week that is outside of meetings where I not only do exciting things like email um, or, or instant messaging, but also review, like finance reviews. How much money do we need next year? How many people do we have? How many people do we need? Make sure that our goals have the resources now and in the future so that we can hit or succeed or supersede them and match up all these different great ideas that very clever people have that don't always naturally align. Right. So that's the job. So that means reading up on a lot of uh, best practice and, and model. It means reviewing a lot of data, competitive analysis, uh, production data, staffing data, finance data making the right decisions with the right people and then making sure those decisions actually happen by placing it with the right people, making sure they understand following up. So even though it's it's a directorial level job in a very technical organization, it's also about animating and, and empowering people. Right. So it's, it's a nice mix of both because, I mean, I like both. So Yeah, so people me, seem to be one of the key words there. It is. It Amongst is. the data and stuff, people kept coming up. It is the mix. People keep coming up. But like I, I happily spent a couple of years doing like uh, semantics and formal logic and and very mathy stuff. Uh, pretty, but and I like that aspect of understanding the world and working. But I think I ended up with people because I think the really cool things in this world are made by very competent, often very technical people aligning together. Like. It's not a solo project to build the space shuttle <laughs> or the pyramids. It's it's mind-boggling the amount of people who needed to be coordinated and convinced or cajoled or whatever needed to happen to make these things be true and get the outcomes that we have out of it. And um, that's kind of, I think that's a worthy challenge to, to, to animate groups of different specialists and people 
to a unified purpose that really changes the world for the better. Yeah. Because, uh, uh, Julia, you talked uh, a lot about like your background in the customer support area where the knowledge management there kind of sprung up and then how that uh, went into your, your current job and kind of helped inform that. Do, does your job, like managing people, managing like actual operations of the Snowdrop engine, like your background in game design and stuff, help you knowing okay this is what you're doing now is not really needed or you you're really on the right path or so does it uh, come uh, into play often or to me yeah but to me it's a bit of a layer cake it's about attitude fundamentally i mean as long as you have the horsepower to to do what you want to do it's about what's your approach to it yeah so my first career was an illustrator which means to illuminate things like etymologically, like what does the word come from? You can talk to Julia about languages. I know. So. <laughs> I, I love so much about Julia's background and career. But it's it's so crazy cool. But but right, illuminate means like shine a light on things. Like sure. can you see it clearly? What am I looking at? Put it at the right angle. Make sure people understand it. And ideally add information you wouldn't easily get just from reading about it or, or tinkering with it. That's what Illustrator does. Like you absorb all the information, whether it's an engine or a book or whatever you need to illustrate. How do I explain this very quickly, visually? Sure. So I, that kind of was my into game design. Like, what is the point? What are we trying to get people to experience and do? Even if it's vastly complex, how do you put the right strokes to get people to have an in into this? Right. So. My interest for illustration led to my interest in game design, led to my interest in organization and people. But it's the same fundamental perspective, I think, is to help people see the way forward and approach things uh, effectively and correctly. And uh, so, yes. And, and I mean, it's, it's easier when you look back on a career that's reasonably long and say, what, what is the pattern here, right? If you had asked me when I was 20, I wouldn't have given you this answer. You said <laughs> right. I wanted to make cool pictures and make awesome games. Yeah. But when I when I kind of think about what I'm actually doing here, it's that and yeah. to make cool pictures and awesome games. Yeah. So um, we have two kind of vastly different uh, backgrounds and jobs here. So let's just grab both of you and kind of like talk to people who want to get into like academics watching this now going that's awesome like what you describe i think we could talk about knowledge for a long time because the stuff oh, yeah. you say is just super interesting but they're watching this going okay this is such a cool way of applying my skills or people who got no background in this thing like okay that sounds fascinating do you have any like tips and tricks that sound so silly but advice to to people at home that would perhaps be interested in going the same route as you are? Hmm. I would say um, don't uh, give up. Uh, there's always, uh, sometimes, you know, life opens doors that you didn't expect would even be there. So uh, just keep your eyes out for opportunities and figure out what it is that you're uh, passionate about. Like what made you study this thing? Because that what drives you toward studying this thing, that curiosity or that that motivation behind that is perhaps, you know, your secret key and motivation to applying that in other uh, 
context as well. Like uh, like Ula said, his uh, his actual drive is to illuminate things and to make people understand things and make things clear to people. Um, if you can figure out what that driver is inside of you, you can you can do anything with that. You can also, yeah, you can do anything with that. I think one thing you said in the beginning, which is one thing that we we hear quite a lot over the course of these interviews, is like you didn't know you could do that. Like going into yep. games, you, I didn't know I could do that. Yes, and here we are, like yeah. X amount of years later, you've been in the industry. Yes, I I did not expect that at all when I uh, when I was at university reading you know medieval literature in this dusty library. I did not think one day I'll work on a game engine. <laughs> no, I did not think that while I was pulling these books from like 1400s from the shelves that I would be working in tech. Right. I did not think that, but it is possible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one, uh, one time point in time that was the coolest tech imaginable. Books. A book, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and I, I just, I just think it's, um, it's a wonderful because the question that we get most of the time is like, oh, so how do I get into the industry? And a lot of the time, the answer is, oh, you know, go to game school, find uh, what in making a game that you like doing, and and work towards that. But but thinking about it in a different way of, like you just said, find what you're passionate about, and then take a look at jobs in the industry and think. Okay, this is not, you know, apples to apples exactly what that is. Yeah. But what I do, I think I can transfer those skills into doing something mm -hmm. different and valuable on a game project. Yeah. The that drive because skill can be learned, right? I can I can learn how to interact with Snowdrop, I can learn how to use the software that I used to call a customer, you know, that that all of that is not that important. You can learn all of that. What is important is, you know, what drives you and what you really want to do with that. I have operations. <laughs> uh, how do you become an operations director? If I sit at home, no, but <laughs> but it is on your side of things, the more more organizational side of things. It, it I think it really depends. Um, I mean, if if you lined up operations director from other departments in production technology in Ubisoft or from Ubisoft Studios you'll probably get a pretty diverse Star Wars cantina, like a bunch of people <laughs> with very, some super straight laced straight from business school or from administrative uh, training. Some people out of game making, game engineering, some people out of finance or business. And they all found a way right. to do the job in a way that it needed to be done at the quality and, and, and find a way to work that value that is the same in all of these jobs. And I think it's it's one of those positions that are pro is probably relatively diverse. I mean, I know one person who's was an IT in IT sales, who was an operations director. Um, I mean, I, I came from entrepreneurship and game design, sort of, um, and and then entrepreneurship, business, organization, academia. Of. Yeah, <laughs> you know, many many stops along the way. But uh, so it's tricky, but. Actually, I want to park that question or say maybe that's a good enough answer. So my first three years after high school was art school because I wanted to illustrate stuff or draw and paint. But a lot of people kind of get trapped in their own vision of who they should be. Like, I want to be a painter. I want to paint uh, stuff. I want to be a sculptor. I'm like, they only sculpt. They only paint. And they only paint using red and blue paints because that's their style or, you know, only in this level of stylization or detail or whatever they do and in this light it all becomes very ritualized and special. 
and you can recognize that that's a so-and-so painting, even though they're an intermediate student at the time. And people worry, this isn't me or it doesn't look like me. Like, I feel that the people who go the furthest are the people who try absolutely everything. Like, you do etchings, you do sculpture, you do pottery, you do painting and lots of different with, you know, with tempera and oils and acrylics and all the things and, and charcoal and, 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 and ink drawing and live drawing and figure drawing and still lives and, and, and battle scenes and, and fantasy stuff. And, you know, try it, do it all, do it the best sure. you can. And when you look back, like art school is cool because you make physical artifacts, right? So you can put it all in a room at the end of a semester and look like, holy cow, I made this. And I can tell that I did this. And then you look over and see another student in another part of the room with their stuff laid out and trying to figure out what to put to the final exhibit, for instance. That all looks like, you know, Danielle's work. Like I can see that that was sculpted by Danielle and the pottery wheel, that was Danielle's. How they're, they're, you see the fingerprint of the individual so clearly. And sure. even though we used all the same medium and stuff, it's like you couldn't mistake one for the other. And the idea when people sit and go, oh no, I can't paint with acrylics, I'm an oil painter, right? You're yeah. really limiting to actually understand what your core is or kind of what you can contribute and and kind of what you can do. It's not about the exact medium always. Of course, there are very advanced technical skills. Like if you want a good statistician or you want a good render programmer, they have to have very advanced, very clear technical skills to do that work. But if you have two people with the equivalent skill, they will write slightly different code. They will sure. approach it differently from how they abstract things, from how they see the world, from like, and, and, that's the deciding factor at the end of there. So it's a mix of hard skills. They, they shouldn't be discounted, of course. You need them. Uh, I can do my job without a couple of sets of hard skills. But the perspective, like your unique approach or kind of your uh, finding your way and what you're good at and, and what it actually is that you're doing, don't be afraid to experiment. Don't be afraid to try things, I guess, especially for these kind of compound jobs. Uh, I guess if you're, you really just want to be the best concept artist, you should probably concept like, like a, like a, like that's all that matters. Be completely monomaniacal. But the people who tie all this together are usually generalists who kind of can understand many things and have the right skills to stitch it together. And arguably, Julia and I are both in in sort of uh, generalist roles in that respect, even though they're quite different from each other. Um, so. Yeah, I, I mean, very eloquently put. Especially at the end there. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, the finest work. <laughs> much, much better than I could have put it. But yeah, that's uh, that's it. One other thing that I might want to add is that um, I find that a lack of a particular skill, even though it shouldn't be discounted, um, shouldn't put you off. When I thought about joining Snowdrop, I thought, but I'm not an engineer. I'm not a programmer. Can I really, like, am I in the right place? But it turns out that teams benefit from diversity and being someone else with a different background and bringing this different perspective actually helps the entirety of the team. Yeah. So uh, that should not be a mental block in yourself, this sort of thought. Fantastic. Good life advice as well. Yeah. 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 Covered the breadth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's science oh. behind that. Sorry. 
No, 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 no. I can, I, I'll hold up. No, it's to, to sort of wrap it. Like we talk a lot about diversity as as a good thing, and diversity, all kinds of it, can be very good for a business, for instance, like we are. Um, demographic diversity, different ages and different uh, countries of origin, and you know this and that, are good often for role model purpose. Like, hey, I'm welcome here. People like me work here. People I can recognize myself in, and that's super good. Because you unlock a, a big talent pool and and you you know create a welcoming workplace, but then you got cognitive diversity, which is different systems of thinking, different backgrounds of experience and training, and and it's quite clear in organizational psychology that if you put a number of people in a room that maybe are uh, demographically diverse but come from the same, we all went to the same school eventually and have the same trade. And you kind of try to solve a problem. Maybe you have ten ideas out of five people, and nine of those are probably the same because we know how to solve these kinds of problems. And you do this, but if you have oh, there's five people, five different cognitions, right? Maybe one knowledge manager, maybe one engine programming specialists, maybe one project manager from different you know walks of life. You probably get ten ideas, and six or seven of those are different, right? And you can try more aggressively which one is best fit to do the best solution to this problem. So cognitive diversity is is a, is a superpower in knowledge work and, and demographic diversity is a superpower in building big, healthy organizations. Thank you so much, both Julia and Ulla, for coming here and, uh, well, telling us all about your jobs. And everything. Yeah, and, everything. And, 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 and life advice and, and life advice and, and everything. And all of it. All of it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't yeah. eat the yellow snow. <laughs> that is good. I've always wondered. I, I always thought about show. doing it. Now I know I shouldn't. Indeed. Especially and, now your 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 leave, Alex. It's winter's coming. Oh mm -hmm. dear. Oh dear. But yeah, like um, like Ola said, on that bombshell, uh, that's <laughs> it for us today. Thank you so much for uh, watching and or listening. Remember, of course, as always, to like and subscribe, hit the bell. All that stuff. Rate, uh, yeah, rate, review. You blah, know blah, blah. the drill. You've already done it. Tell your friends to do it. Yeah. Perfect. And then, you know, do it again yourself because, you know, that helps the algorithm. But anyway, thank you for watching and uh, see Bye. you on the next one. Bye. Bye-bye.